Well, good morning. I want to extend my good morning to you as well. My name is Paco, and I have the privilege of serving with the high school students here at PBC. And uh, yes, we did just get back from Hume eight days ago, and many of us are still recovering. So I, I covet your prayers as well, as it feels like today is like the end of like a marathon. So thank you for praying while we were there. Appreciate you praying for me even now. And um, day to pray for our youth. Uh, it was an amazing week. They encountered the word. God really spoke in and through the speakers there. And so uh, continue to pray that they continue to pursue the Lord even as they come back to sort of normal life and normal rhythms. And so, yeah. Cool, let's just jump in. So uh, a few weeks ago, if you were here, I shared a story uh, from when I was eight years old about how my friend and I used to play basketball in his backyard and we would argue over who would be Michael Jordan. And uh, we argued over it, we fought over it even, and uh, we resolved to allow two Michael Jordans on one team, and even though we never played against anyone else, we were undefeated. So that's how that went. But my dream of being the Hispanic Michael Jordan didn't last that long. I was eight years old when that sort of dream came up, and by the time I was eight and a half, I had a new dream. I had a new calling, and I was uh, so convinced that it was my calling and what I wanted to do that I would also be, con I was also convinced that it was like something I was going to be really successful at. I was going to be so successful at this that I told my older brother that, hey, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be so successful at it that I am going to be able to buy a huge house, and then behind my huge house, there's going to be another house, and you know what, brother, you can live there rent-free. That's how successful I'm going to be at this. And what did I want to be? What was the next dream? It was a professional football player. And uh, funny thing is, that dream lasted a lot longer than six months. It actually carried on with me beyond those years. I played on some pretty competitive teams as a kid, uh, two of which won national championships in Pop Warner. And so I thought maybe, maybe this dream could come true. That is until junior year of high school. I actually have a picture of myself back then. The first service didn't laugh. You can laugh at this picture. Hey, I'll give you permission for that. Uh, no facial hair, an awesome mustache, and yes, those are real earrings in my ear, real fake diamonds, I shall say, real fake earrings in my ear. Uh, and I thought it was a very, very cool person. And about this time, junior year of high school, I got invited to, uh, with one of the players for my team to be part of a combine actually over here at Stanford. And uh, if you're not familiar with what a combine is, they call together uh, a bunch of different recruits to evaluate whether or not a college might want you to be part of their team. And so this was a gathering of probably hundreds of high school students from around the country and colleges from around the country pulled together to see whether or not we were worthy of being recruited. As you would imagine, I was pretty nervous for that day and I remember arriving and getting out of the car and starting to look around and realizing and asking the question, like, are these guys really all high school students? Because uh, I'm looking around and I see some grown men out here with facial hair like mine today. And uh, they, were, they looked pretty big and pretty strong and pretty fast. And the day started, and I realized that they didn't just look that way, but they actually were big, and they were strong, and they were really fast. And I started to feel like as the day progressed, like, like 
Maybe I don't belong here. I'd imagine it's something like, you know, when, when I compete against Paul Taylor at anything other than running, sort of maybe that feeling is sort of what I, what I felt like there. But the day continues, and I, I go through the drills and the 40-yard dash and the, ju- the, the shuttle and, and the vertical and all this stuff, and I don't really quite meet the marks I wanted to meet. And through the scrimmages, I realize, like, man, these guys are really, really good. And at the end of this whole day, they pull all of us recruits onto the practice field. They had erected a stage out there. And they proceed to call up what they called the number one rated prospect or player of the camp. Evidently, they had collected all the numbers throughout the day, and they put it through some sort of algorithm, and out popped this number one player. Spoiler alert, it was not me. And uh, they called him up, and he was huge and evidently fast, and evidently strong, and evidently a lot more of a recruit than I was. And so I remember feeling as I left that day that maybe this dream is over. And in fact, it was. I played out my final seasons in high school and opted out beyond that for football because I'm like, I'm not gonna make it to the pros. I've already seen the competition at this level. Not gonna go there. Why do I sort of open with this story. The the question I want us to consider as we continue our look in Hebrews 11, and specifically our, our quick look at Abraham, is the question of what do we do when the dream is in jeopardy? What do we do when the dream or the vision or the plan seems like it's just not going to work out? What do we do with that? Now, we're gonna look at Abraham this morning. In his case, this dream, this vision is given to him by God, but then we're gonna see God ask him to do something that's completely contrary to that happen. Like, is if he does this, this dream probably isn't going to work out. And conventional wisdom would tell you, if you're obedient here, then that dream and vision is not gonna happen. So let's jump in, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. And it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Now, this story actually comes out of Genesis chapter 22. We'll take a a deeper look at it in just a minute. But I want to acknowledge that that this is an odd and, 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 and intense test that Abraham is put through. God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And maybe even you sitting where you are, uh, we're not streaming, we're having fun here. Uh, Maybe you're even having this question bubble up in your mind as to why would God ask someone to do this, anybody to do this? And especially why would would God ask somebody given given the fact that he's the one that brought about this child and brought about this promise to Abraham, why would he ask him to do this? And we'll look at that story from Genesis 22, and I'll offer some perspective on this. But before we get there, I want to remind us, and as I often remind myself, is that God is the God of the Bible. God is the God of Scripture, even when it makes us feel uncomfortable even when it makes us feel uncomfortable. So even though, you know, I may wrestle with this testing, I may wrestle with this specific story, I approach the text, I approach the scriptures as true and as revealing of who God is. And I try to put aside what I want to believe about God to learn and discern what I ought to believe about God based on the scripture. So I try to, to sort of remove any filter, whether it's like an intellectual filter thinking like I know something before I actually know something or a, or a sort of experiential filter where like because I've experienced life in this way or I've had this experience, therefore I believe this about God, therefore everything from the scriptures must fit through that lens. I try to remove those filters again to let the scriptures speak to me 
about what I ought to believe about God based on what the scriptures tell me rather than what I believe going into the scriptures. So, okay, let's look at the story from Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, so both in Hebrews and in Genesis, it says that we're, uh, Abraham is being tested, and I think he's, he's being tested on a number of levels. In the first level, he's being tested in, in obedience. God is asking him to do something. He's asking him to offer up the son that he loves. And, you know, Isaac's actually not his only son, but he's the son of the promise. The text calls him the only son because he is the son of promise, of which it said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham is being tested in obedience. But on another level, he's being tested in his faith that God would still fulfill his promises. Because God promised him that he would make a great nation from him and that this great nation would come through Isaac. Because if Isaac is sacrificed, then how can this promise be fulfilled? If the one who the descendants is promised to come through is no more, how can this promise happen? Now, quickly addressing this, this oddity of a request from God, the, the first thing I would say is this, is, is that for Abraham, child sacrifice would not be an unfamiliar thing. In the land and region he is from, sacrificing a child for a deity would not be uncommon or unheard of. So for Abraham, this is not a completely unfamiliar thing. But the the second thing I want to say is that what I really think is happening here is that God is doing something, and spoiler alert in this story, God does not allow uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but he's, he's trying to deconstruct Abraham's notion that God requires a sacrifice or an offering from him. That maybe these other gods he's heard of or these other idols he's experienced require you to give a sacrifice at their mercy, but God says, I will provide for you. And there's, it's not so much about what we can offer God, but about what he offers us. So I think part of what he's doing here is showing Abraham that he's not like other gods requiring a sacrifice from us. And the story will see that God uh, provides the sacrifice by a trapped animal. And in our story, ultimately, God provides a sacrifice through his son on the cross. God is revealing of himself even through this odd test that Abraham is put through. So we know Abraham acts out of faith and he hears God and he responds by faith and do, to do what he is told. He, he packs up his stuff, he, he saddles his donkey, he heads out to find the mountain that the Lord will show him. A few days later, he arrives, he sees the mountain, and he heads up with Isaac. And I think Genesis 22, verse 5, gives us a glimpse of, of, of the faith that Hebrews 11 highlights. It shows that his confidence that he would return with Isaac. And it says this, Then Abraham said to his young men, the people he brought with him, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham still believes that he's going to go up the mountain. He's going to go up the mountain and, and, and sacrifice his son. Yet he is confident that he's going to return with Isaac. At, at this point, he hasn't told anyone else what he's about to do. He evidently hasn't told Isaac because he actually has Isaac carry up the wood. That's for his own sacrifice. He probably wouldn't do that if he knew. And, and at one point, Isaac even turns to his dad and says, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the knife in your hand. Uh, where's the sacrifice? 
And Abraham, he says, God will provide. God will provide. He gives his confidence. Where does his confidence come from? Let's, let's turn back to our text in Hebrews 11, verse 19. He considered, Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham did not know that God would stop him from sacrificing his son. He, he went up the mountain with full intention of being obedient to God. He, he had, his faith was, was that God would still fulfill his promise. And it never wavered, never wavered. His faith that God would still fulfill his promises never wavered. He, he considered like, okay, God has promised me this. He's asked me to do this. And he considered what would God do? And he considered that God would be able to do something greater than even he could imagine. And he believed even if he were to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him back up to fulfill his promises. And as impossible or as improbable as that might have sounded, Abraham had more faith that it was impossible for God not to fulfill his promises. So I've already spoiled the end of the story for us, but, but the two set up the mountain, uh, they build the altar, altar, Isaac is bound, and before any arm comes to him, God stops Abraham and provides an animal for the sacrifice. It says this, Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went up and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In opening, I had us ponder the question, what do we do when the dream is in jeopardy? What do we do when the, the dream or the vision or the plan seems like it may not work out have faith that the Lord will provide. In Abraham's story, when, when obedience seemed contrary to the dream and vision God gave him, he had faith and believed that God would provide. In, in our story, God will provide. And that's not to say that every dream or plan or vision or thing we want to happen is gonna work out the way that we want it to um, because it's ultimately God's will, God's plan being worked out, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And this is like when I was, you know, 17 years old out there as a, as a child amongst men uh, at the combine, I would have wanted nothing more than to God to make me better, make me bigger, make me faster, help my plan to work out, but he did not. And how, but that's okay. And actually that's good because he provided for me a new path, a new vision, and a new purpose, one that led me into ministry and that led me to be a high school pastor here in Palo Alto. And I wouldn't trade it. Because God's will is more perfect. God's will is more pleasing. In God's will, there is more abundant life to be had. And so whether the dream is working out or not, whether it's coming to fruition or not, have faith that the Lord provides what we need to walk in his will to accomplish his purposes that may not always line up with ours, but are always greater than our own. So by all accounts, this was a huge act of faith on Abraham's part and I believe that it's this act of faith and also sort of the pattern of faith that he uh, sort of is ascribed to him throughout his life sends a ripple effect through the generations. Let's look at the next few verses in Hebrews 11, verses 20 to 22. It says this, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. In verses 20 to 22, we see how Abraham's faith sends a ripple effect from generation to generation. Each person person mentioned did something by faith and inspires the next generation to have faith in the promises of God. And it's interesting, these, these acts, sort of, most of them come out the, the, the end of their lives, towards the end of their lives, in Jacob's life, in Isaac's life, and in Joseph's life. And I think we you know when we're faced with, with death or our own finiteness or um, our own mortality, oftentimes uh, the most important things come up and bubble up in our lives. They become a priority in our lives. And, and for these patriarchs, I think it's, it's a blessing of the next generation and a reminder to them of the promised future. Um, towards the end of my uh, grandfather's life, um, he lived uh, with my mother. And uh, though we were never close, my grandfather and I, because for most of my life, he, he lived in Mexico and was a rancher. And uh, even when he, he did move with us or moved into my mother's house, uh, we still weren't that close, didn't have a whole lot of history together. Um, and there was a bit of a, a, a language barrier because uh, mi espanol no es muy bien, you know, that whole thing. Um, but I remember quite distinctly my last interaction with my grandfather. It, the last time I saw him, it was the day before he flew back to Mexico because he actually desired to spend his last days or years, however, whatever the Lord gave him, to be in his hometown. And I remember uh, going to his room over at my mom's house and knocking on the door to say, to say bye. Just, you know, I know you're leaving and we may not see each other again and, um, as best I could in Spanish. And uh, I went to his room and he actually called me in and he sat me down and then he started doing something that was sort of outside of anything we'd ever done before. He began to pray over me and he began to, to bless me. And now I, I didn't catch everything that he said, all the words uh, but I did hear enough to know that he prayed protection over me. I did hear enough to hear that he prayed blessing over me. And I did hear enough to, to know that he prayed in Jesus' name. And that was the last time I spoke to him because about a year later, he passed away. And so a few of my family members, we, we flew down to Mexico for his funeral. My family's uh, mostly Catholic, so they had a sort of traditional Catholic uh, mass for him and, and we transitioned from the church to the burial site and uh, we're sort of standing around and not a lot's happening uh, and evidently there was some miscommunication or something because we're all standing around looking around and there's no priest actually showed up to preside over the burial and after enough standing and looking around people realized that uh, well there's only one pastor in the family so uh, they started looking around and looking at me and at first thought I was like no way no way this morning, I woke up not thinking I was going to preside over a burial, and I don't intend on doing that now. Uh, look somewhere else. But, but then I remembered my last interaction with him. Then I remembered his prayers for me. Then I remembered the hope that we both shared. And so I said, okay. I went up there with, with no plan, with, with no notes, but I just shared and spoke of the great hope that we both had. And it was because of his blessing over me that gave me the confidence to do that. And as we remember the, you know, the people, the, the patriarchs, they, they weren't perfect. You know, my relationship with my grandfather was not perfect. He was not a perfect person either. 
and the patriarchs weren't perfect. Uh, Isaac, you know, Isaac played favorites, and, and, and Jacob created this, this family dynamic that you should never do. And, and Joseph's life, we, as we learned over the past series, it was not f- full of just happy all the time, but, but lots of, of hard things and hardships. Yet they, by faith, blessed the next generation and reminded them of the promised future. Listen, as followers of Christ, we have a hope for the future. God has, has promised us an eternity with him. He promises us even now as we live out our lives in a broken and fallen world that he will never forsake us. He will never turn away from us. He will never leave us. He promises that his grace is sufficient for us no matter what it is you have done or said or could do. His grace is sufficient for you. He promises that if our faith is in him, we are his sons and we are his daughters and he is our good father. We have a hope-oriented heaven word. And if that is true of you, I want to encourage you to, like the patriarchs, share your faith with the generations. If you were here a few weeks ago, it's very similar to the takeaway when I asked us to listen to the faith stories, but also to build our own faith stories. And my distinction here is that because our tendency is to stick around people that we know, our tendency is to stick around people that are our same age or the same life stage, that to break out of those barriers and to share our faith outside of our own generation or demographic or group. One of the things I, I love about PBC is that we span the generations. I mean, we, we span from infants and youth to young adults to, you know, whatever you call Paul Taylor to even people who have been walking with the Lord for longer than I've been alive. This is a gift, but it's not just a gift for ourselves. It's not just a gift for those just right around us in the same age and life stage, but it's a gift to all the generations. To have these rich stories, these rich stories of faith is a gift that we should share with the generations around us. Our youth and our children need to hear that rich diversity of background and faith and stories that we all have. They need to hear the way the Lord speaks his truth through us from different backgrounds and age demographics. And listen, thinking about our youth here, our high schoolers need more than just my stories and my perspective and my voice. Our middle schoolers need more than just Bella's stories and her perspective and the way the Lord speaks truth through her. Through her. Our children need more than just Becca's story and perspective and the way she teaches the truth. They need to be blessed by the stories of all of the generations and be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. Let God use your faith story and stories of faith to send a ripple effect to the generations by sharing them. And we learned this morning, hey, look, it's just three clicks away and you're already serving with children's ministry, so not much excuse there. Um, I, I wanna end sort of here. Um, I, I'm always struck as I, as I read through the scriptures and I read it specifically of the Israelites and, and how they go on the exodus outside of Egypt and, and, and into the promised land. And they're led by Moses. And then they're led into the promised land by, by uh, Joshua. And this, this promise can be traced all the way back to Abraham. And, and, and Joseph's bones, as we saw even in the last passage, this is sort of like a reminder that that land is not their home, right? And then they arrive into the promised land and they're given victory after victory and then they settle in the land. And you would think that at this point they've seen God show up in miraculous ways. He has been a faithful God. Now should be a golden age of people turning to the Lord and having faith and they should establish themselves in the land as God's people. This would be the moment. But they have multiple failures and one of the failures is that they fail to pass on the faith to the next generation. 
Listen to these two verses out of Judges regarding faith from one generation to the next. Judges 2, verses 8 and 10. It says this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Skipping down to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so instead of this period being a golden age of of them knowing the Lord and pursuing the Lord, it is a low point for the Israelites. They have multiple failures. And again, they do not pass on their faith to the next generation. They go from a faithful generation who has seen God work in amazing ways to a generation that doesn't know him, a generation that ultimately turns away from him. And for this to happen, there was a breakdown, I think, on multiple levels from, from life at home to church life and everywhere in between. These stories and faith was not shared. And um, I want us to take note of this and to pour into the next generation by sharing our faith with them, opening the scriptures with them, reminding them of the great hope we have in Christ Jesus. From, from parents to the children to young people and older, the generations around you need to hear your faith, to be encouraged and reminded of the future hope we have. If you hope heavenward, share of the great hope for the benefit of those around you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you so much that you are a good and faithful God through the generations. God, even in this church, we have seen you be faithful through the generations. We thank you for the, the rich diversity of faith and background we have here. You've called us each from unique circumstances as, as people who are far away, who are now near you because of the cross. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and Help us to step into the opportunities that we have to share that faith. And not just with those around us, not just our close friends or with people with the same life ages as us, Lord, but that we would step out of those barriers to share with different generations, those older and younger, that we might be mutually encouraged and challenged and reminded of who you are and reminded of the great hope we have in you, that this is not our home. We hope for a future that is heavenward where we will interact with without barrier, where we see all of your glory, where there will be no pain and no tears, but we will be fully free to express our worship to you and express our love for each other. God, that is our hope. Help us to, to share our faith and to point each other to that great hope. Not Again, not just with our friends, but outside of that group, outside of our generation, that we may never turn from you and always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the eternity that we will spend with him. Grace on Jesus' name.